Near Future Laboratory Podcast, episode 76, and I'm still your one and only host, Julian Bleeker, here at the Near Future Laboratory. And I want to tell you something before we start. So I finally created a workshop series for organizations that are really wanting to integrate design fiction into their future strategy, but kind of don't know where to start. Yeah, this is something that works across domains, from accounting and branding and communications, operations, research and development, sales, training, user experience, Every one of your departments has to think of its relevance, its role, practice, its near future. And I've found that design fiction is one very effective way to plan and strategize those futures. You know, when I was planning the future of my company, Amada, what I did was create an annual report for the company, but from the future. It was my design fiction way of planning across the business. I had advertisements in there, I had details of collaborations, financials, there were even magazine articles that, you know, of course I wrote myself, but I was trying to imagine into what would people say about this company, about this brand. I even had hiring in there. One of my investors said like, hey, who's going to be working there? It's like, good point. Who, who would I want to be working there? And all these things were represented in this ridiculously vivid detail as if these things had happened. And it really changed my mind state. It really put me into that world. And it made me understand what I wanted to grow and how I was going to do it. And I'll tell you what, doing it in that fashion, as weird as it might sound, brought a level of detail and acuity to the development of the business that some pretty wild things happen. So get this. One of the things that happens, I, I did this kind of uh, trying to imagine what the collaborations, the brand collaborations that would happen. And I did this design fiction collaboration with Paul Smith. So he's the fashion brand, fashion icon. He often does cycling related products and they found out about it. They saw it and they reached out and we ended up doing a retail collaboration, which is crazy. I mean, they made these awesome displays and featured the product in their retail shops and online and it sold out in like four minutes. No joke, totally seriously. My point is this. Design fiction does real work. It has real value for team alignment, for making people see the futures that you're trying to create, for seeing the ways in which your brand and your organization and your business and your team might evolve, for turning inspiration and imagination into true innovation. And well, in my case, that annual report from the future, it became my pitch deck. And then some amazing brand ended up buying the company after seeing that pitch deck slash annual report. I mean, your mileage will definitely vary. So if this is interesting to you, let's have a chat. Just send a note here to julian at nearfuturelaboratory.com, connect with me on LinkedIn, or find a time to chat through my calendar. All the links are in the show notes below. I've always wanted to say that. The links are in the show notes below. Now, there's one more thing I want to tell you about. There are these two book bundles I put together in the Near Future Laboratory shop. First, there's the big box of design fiction, and then there's the smaller box of design fiction. Two bundles of our best-selling books at a steep discount. In the book box of design fiction, you get the manual design fiction, of course, the reader's guide to the manual design fiction, and what I consider the best example of design fiction around TBD catalog, 10th anniversary edition. But you're saying, well, I already got the manual design fiction. I got it in that first order. Then you want to complement those with two other critical books to complete your design fiction library. Of course, that's the reader's guide. It's the follow on to the manual and answers the question, why design fiction? What is its purpose? Why is it existentially vital that we reinvigorate this beautiful capacity we all have to imagine and now imagine into possible futures in a tangible way beyond 
all the science fiction blockbusters and the fantasy superhero films, how can fiction become a component of material making practice in a deep and meaningful way? How can we reimagine what design can be so it's not just in service to the exponential growth of demands of industry? So those are the two things, the big box of design fiction and the smaller box of design fiction. Get yours over at shop.nearfuturelaboratory.com. Okay, now back to the show. Like I said, episode 76 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast. This one episode is a discussion with my friends John Rod and Kinta Kondo, who are from IDEO Tokyo. They ran a super fascinating design fiction project and came on the podcast to share their experience and reflect on the value of the practice design fiction and how it helped them in a real way engage with the public around food futures. You're going to love this episode. So maybe maybe we can start with a little bit of an overview how the thing came to exist. And then I can also talk about what it is um, together with Kenta. Um, but earlier this year, we decided to experiment a little bit more in depth with design fiction and doing tangible futures. That's kind of how we call it um, here at IDEO. And we were looking for a theme because it was a pretty blank slate. We wanted something that is not attached to any client so that we can use it publicly and that we don't have to worry about um, confidentiality. And we started brainstorming um, themes. And one of the themes that came up that the team got really passionate about was a future of food security. And in turn, that became throughout the design process, a future of sushi. And we were using the sushi box as an embodiment um, of um, the food security in the future, because it's one of these archetypes that everybody here in Japan is familiar with. So it's really easy to um, use that as a, uh, as a departure point for the design, right? And so um, you go to any supermarket here and people will have, um, or the supermarket will have these sushi boxes, which is an assortment of a few pieces of, you know, there's tuna and there is um, the shrimp and there is the other types of Japanese um, fish that I don't know the names for in English. <laughs> but, um, but it's something that is so ubiquitous that everybody will have that um, in their mind, right? And um, the team through the exploration of the uh, of the topic landed on um, on the sushi box as an embodiment um, of that future of food security, right? And telling the story um, uh, of that future through the sushi box, right? And asking those questions about the future and embodying them in the physical object. The sushi box, uh, it was sort of an aluminum uh, or stainless steel can that we spray painted black and red in the cultural artifact sense of Japanese lacquerware. Uh, it's called urushi, and it's like this beautiful black and red um, packaging that exists that oftentimes disposable packaging in uh, Japanese supermarkets uh, that, that Japanese supermarkets often use. And we were trying to resemble what that might look like if it became like a reusable pattern. Um, and we were adding lots of typography, but also labels that are very ubiquitous to, and just commonplace for the what everybody sees, as Jan said before, uh, as they roll through the supermarket. Oh, that's the shrimp sushi, or that's the maguro sushi, or that's the yellowtail sushi. 
And by adding lots of these Uncanny Valley-esque details that make people think, hey, what the hell's going on there? That's, that is not the sushi that I know of. And then that sort of starts, once they pick up on one detail, they'll look more into the details that exist and they sort of get trapped in this idea of, oh, I have to find more details and details and details. And all these details that we put in, which were sort of an embodiment of the what ifs that came out or the what if questions that came out from our research, uh, people start questioning and imagining, hey, this is not the world that I know of. I must not be in the actual reality. This must be sort of a fiction that I'm a part of. Mm. And it sort of gets people into this inquisitive mode, as Jan said, to uh, expand their imagination and think about possible futures that could potentially exist, not within our current day, but uh, sometime in the near future. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I really, um, I really like that aspect of creating that space, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, kind of providing both the props, but also the narrative that comes with them that people can not only intellectually indulge in, but also touch and smell. And we actually make the sushi inside the box. Kenta um, has done now um, the thing probably 25 times. <laughs> and so he's becoming a sushi master, but um... absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Let's not disrespect our sushi folks. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but you know, it's a um, um, when we when we give it to people during the workshop, it's an actual box and it's heavy, and you open it and there is real sushi inside it. Yeah, and but because it comes in this very different packaging that is still somewhat similar people are kind of like suspicious of yeah. what is that thing inside, right? Yeah. And we always get that question. It's like, can we actually eat it? <laughs> I think that's sort of like the critical design like territory of like mm -hmm. pushing something to the extreme and making people question. And like, it's the weird to the extreme so that people evoke that, oh my God, what the hell is this sort of yeah. feeling? Yeah. And uh, during some of our workshops, uh, one thing that I like personally enjoy seeing is uh, for example, we have these sachets that are inside our sushi box. Mm -hmm. They're sort of paper sachets. Yeah. And we have one for wasabi. We have one for those ginger that you see inside okay. sushi packaging. Yeah. We also have soy sauce. Yeah. And the one design detail that exists here is that it's made of paper mm -hmm. instead of those single-use plastics that we often see in those packaging. Right. And by making them paper, people start realizing, uh, oh, why is it a piece of paper? And then you start looking at the details within it, and it says things like powdered or kona, so pulverized. So they're all dry condiments that's inside. Yeah. And at the first glance, huh. people are like, oh my God, powdered? That sounds terrible. Powdered sushi, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. They start opening it. They start tasting it. They're like, oh, wait, this is actually dehydrated wasabi that's actually kind of cool because we actually use dehydrated wasabi that exists in the market and just yeah it. yeah and after a while they start thinking oh but why is it a piece of paper and then on the newspaper we have something that says like single uh use plastic ban that exists uh in nine uh 2027 or something we made up a random number 
but then people start making the connection like oh actually this is kind of cool because yeah if we start using paper packaging for all these single-use uh condiments like how much plastics or microplastics get reduced and so this initial weird reaction of oh that's a disgusting powdered thing that's don't even put that in my face because something like oh it becomes more tolerable so it sort of gently shifts the consciousness towards yucky to something favorable and like be, seeing that shift i think was actually quite cool plus i think that it gets people thinking about the shift in the culture right mm -hmm. because yes it's packaging and yes it's um a condiment and but it also connects very much to how we eat and how we interact with the food mm -hmm. right and so um i really like these intersectional themes right where you can oscillate between well yes we are talking about supply chain and we are talking about packaging and we are talking about um you know new technologies that we will need to develop to um make this type of um food packaging possible but also what it means for the culture of eating and what yeah. it means for you know the shift that needs to happen because we have been using soy sauce for the past thousand years in the liquid form and maybe we won't be able to or we won't be able to in that context of the sushi box that you buy in the supermarket yeah right it's yeah. only going to be a thing that exists at home in the you know very famous design of you know that beautiful Kiko sushi man show you. yeah yeah kikoman show you um the soy sauce bottle yeah right and suddenly um you know we can move between these um, modes of thinking or like different areas that we are exploring, mm -hmm. right? We can move between um, culture and um, technology and impact on society and the impact on everyday life that, um, you know, these futures have. And so um, I really think that to be able to get there, um, we need to work at that level of detail, right? Like this is these artifacts that the team has created are incredibly detailed, right? And I think that the fidelity kind of unlocks the depth in the thinking, right? And kind of working with that fidelity intentionally um, in the design process is something that um, we have been exploring. We have done another, um, another theme, uh, and I don't want to diverge too much, but we did a theme on the future of digital consumption, where um, we were looking at attention economy and um, and things like that, and there we are making a lot of receipts from um, you know stores, and we bought a little thermal printer and like replicated the design, but we added some things where you say like, oh, maybe you got um, some like money deduction for looking at advertisement uh, inside the store. Right. And this is something that is very detailed. Like if you saw that receipt in, um, you know, somebody on somebody's desk, you would just like not notice that at all. But I almost accidentally expensed it last time. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing my expense reports having yawn and I was like, oh, wait, this is not a real receipt. I that I should delete that from my <laughs> screenshots of receipts. <laughs> Apologies. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's like it's that level of fidelity that um, uh, that is important, and it's important for that for that fidelity to be intentional, and for us as um, you know the designers creating that world to um, uh, to work with that fidelity intentionally. 
Yeah. And that's what I also, um, you know, really like about doing things like that is that, you know, it's not solutiony, right? Like it's not focusing on the solution. Like if you embody it in the receipt and it's this, you know, line item, right? And people are like, they are reading and there's like, wait, what? And then, you know, at that moment, it becomes the imagination piece. It's not about persuading people, oh, we'll have, um, you know, we'll give you some money for, you know, staring at an advertisement inside the store. Yeah. What do you think about that? It's not that, right? Like it's, it's there and it's part of that reality. And, you know, the people who are interacted with that object reflect on it in their own way, right? It's not like a slide in a deck or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think to add to Jan there, I think maybe just in the design market uh, or the design job, oftentimes design is now often seen as a problem solving tool um, or we need to be solving problem always or uh, the role of designer is to sort of fix solution, uh, fix up problems and then provide solutions. But like what I love about design fiction is it's not about providing those solutions right in front of you, oftentimes in really beautiful renderings, but it's more talking, presenting potential context and implications about potential futures that might come. And we're embodying a lot of these, what if questions, like what if, uh, uh, what if uh, all produce become D2C and middlemen get obs become obsolete and we're able to sort of, it, we're able to create those provocations into tangible formats for people to, yeah, to create that space for imagination. And yeah, the ability to say this, it, the role of designer is not just to problem solve, but to provide problems or not provide problems to lay them out so that other people can start guiding their consciousness towards that problem. Mm. And yeah, it's such a refreshing mindset to be in. Or even think about what the future problems might be, right? I think that, mm -hmm. you know, and that's something that I very often reflect on, right? When you mm -hmm. um, look at especially the big tech companies, they waste so much money on R&D that doesn't really connect to a lot of things, right? I mean, even if you look at Academia, I was thinking about that this morning. Um, I'm sure you are aware, Julian, of conferences like UIST, right? Mm -hmm. Which, um, you know, where you go and see the cutting edge of, you know, human computer interaction. I have a background in HCI, so I very often go there to see um, what's going on, right? And you see all this research that is going into these areas that don't really immediately connect to anything else. It's just like, it's novel and that's what counts, right? And to me, this practice is beautiful because it puts us into that space of thinking about what might be worth investing into for technological R&D or what is that first step towards that future that we want to build, mm -hmm. right? And so it's almost like this catalyst um, for people to, to to think about that, right? What's the ROI? When someone says that, I just kind of get, right. I get, right. I get hives. I'm kind of like, oh, what do you mean? The ROI is return on imagination, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I love um, that. Yeah, which, that, that, that needs to be a bumper sticker. <laughs> let's make um, it. Yeah. I think that's something we are actively 
experimenting with. We have some working hypotheses that we are um, that we are exploring, but um, maybe some early early thoughts on that. When I look at the history of, say, a company like IDEO, for example, where um, you know it all started with industrial design and then it moved to um, you know, kind of factoring in or working in the human factors, which then became human-centered design. Um, we are kind of moving more and more um, to the early stages of the innovation funnel, right? Mm -hmm. And as the companies out there or other, um, you know, companies that make products, usually our clients, um, they are building their own design departments and they are acquiring these capabilities, right? And um, and we are kind of teaching them a lot of that, but at the same time, we need to be pushing our own edge, right? Mm -hmm. And I and I think that that edge is pushing more and more to um, uh, to that side of the innovation funnel with higher and higher ambiguity. Yeah. Right. So it's not it's not the zero to one. It's like, well, what do we start? What what, what is the zero, right? And that's where we need to kind of start working our way a little bit into, um, you know, the near future. And start looking at what might be the problems worth solving that we need to start investing into right now. Yeah. Right. And that's especially true for companies with longer, longer development cycles, right? Yeah. Companies like um, that make, you know, cars or um, uh, that make very complex products that need time um, from their inception to um, the moment that they come to the market. Right. And so you kind of need to be inherently looking a little bit into the future. Right. And so we are kind of trying to create that link between, um, you know, these futures practice and then the rest of the um, innovation funnel. My hypothesis for this is that at this moment, and that's that's the experiment that we are trying to do with Kenta internally, is really use this practice to formulate design briefs, basically. Mm. So imagine that you are a company, a client that makes electronics and you, know, you have all these products in the market and you have all these departments and verticals that focus on different pieces of, um, uh, of the market out there, right? And you are in this mindset, it's like, well, we need to also think about something new. We can't make, keep making, you know, the same thing, right? Um, over and over again, because that's going to um, push us into um, irrelevancy. Then this can serve as that initial step, right? You can go and find a theme that is intersectional. And then within that theme, you can create that future world. Um, or multiple, and then you can go into those worlds and explore them and try to better understand what 
the problems might be. And from that, you can work your way back to something that is a, um, a design brief, basically. I remember in one, I don't know if it was a podcast or an article, um, but I think you were talking about it, right? Um, the metaphor was something like going into the future blind versus seeing in contours. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I think that, you know, that really represents that, right? Like if you are going into the future blind and you need to spend $100 million a year in R&D and you need to allocate the budget somehow, right? You may be looking at some trends and you may be looking at some um, maybe even potential signals, right? But I think that this practice allows the imagination to, or to lead with the imagination, mm. right? Yeah. To see those and imagine those contours and understand what is worth investing into. And the artifact is the instantiation of imagination mm -hmm. in a way, the thing as opposed yep. to a written down idea or something on a whiteboard or. On that note, maybe I can pitch in a little bit, but after running with a couple of prospective clients um, of the sushi workshop, or actually the food security workshop, not the sushi workshop, just to clarify. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think everybody comes in with a different set of backgrounds, different set of expertise, different set of assumptions. Um, and despite the very nature of humans, we all have a different version of the future that we see. So we all have different, like even our present objective reality, we all have different versions of it almost, like we're seeing different versions of the same reality. And if that is true, then most certainly our thoughts about the future are all different. Mm. And even the imagination funnel that you just showed on camera, everyone has their own different version and it's not overlapped. But by having this sort of artifact right in front of us, the instantiation of it's almost a sacrificial future that exists right in front of us. Mm. And at that moment, when we're all gathering around to observe it, it brings everybody into the same place to talk about the same future, maybe not the correct future or the right future. If anything, the correct future doesn't exist, but there, we create a moment in a space for people to align and be able to say, oh, that is something that I want, or that is something that I don't want. How do we go away from it? Yeah. And we as a team, we as a team, uh, we as a team, but also the people that are experiencing the object. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I yeah, meant. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I yeah. Meant. Yeah. 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 And one thing that um, the, I can't say the client name, but uh, one of our automotive people have told us, like, by presenting the future uh, in a tangible form, it allows all people of different backgrounds, positions, and roles to focus on sacrificial future and use that as an anchor point to discuss, ideate, and strategize about the same but different future. Yeah. And that sort of helped me understand, oh, like design fiction or just this tangible artifact is such an important tool to one, raise personal motivations about why am I working in this particular organization? Mm -hmm. Why is the company, what are the aspirations for the company if this such future exists? 
-hmm. And then how do we sort of work together to move forward and push the innovation down the innovation funnel? Uh, one way that Paul Bennett was saying is that the future can't be designed in an Excel spreadsheet because people can't necessarily feel or understand what the implications of those facts or objective trends might mean. Mm -hmm. And by being able to bring it one step closer to what might this mean for me as a human being and my experiences as a human being. Um, yeah, I think that is sort of the power of design fiction and being able to activate all the senses. Yeah. yeah. And isn't it fascinating that how much, how much the future is it's understood as a spreadsheet. You know, you think about like you know, some of the dominant architectures for projecting and anticipating and imagining in some kind of awkward way. And it's like the CFO with their, with their projections. That's where it yep. starts. That's where it starts. And, and just pulling levers in Excel as if, yep. Yep. And, and not realizing like, you know, this is design fiction, isn't it? Look at this thing. This is crazy. <laughs> this isn't real. I'm not saying that they wouldn't necessarily expect that, but, but in a way, it's helpful to think of it that way. In other words, not, but not to like antagonize anyone who, whose world exists, you know, in that space. Mm. I get that. I understand that. And I appreciate it. And also it's like, that's a fiction. It's a fiction in a different form as if, you know, I could write a story about it and you actually, it, one would write a story about it, right? Cause you're not going to just show a giant spreadsheet to the board of directors. The spreadsheet's going to be in the appendix, but everything, the story that you tell is going to be based on that spreadsheet. You know, we're, we're looking at four and a half percent year on year growth. Fantastic. Get her done. You know, but it's like someone just plugs some numbers in, you know, talk to a whole bunch of people, talk to the COO. Can we actually do this? What's, what's coming down the pike? You know, what, what, what's, what's product department working on? Okay. And what, what's the mar I don't care what it is. What's the margin, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I think both needs to exist, but yes, yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, so that, I guess that's the point. It's like, you, you know, I think in, in, uh, in, in this next book, that's the, I, I try to, to make the point that it's not one or the other. It's like, and also, like, wouldn't it be yeah. great to, to, to complement that either as, as a representation of the future, like every spreadsheet should come along with a box of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is what that future looks like. Not just that bar chart, not just that pie graph. You know, it's it's like uh, also this 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 stuff in a way, which I you know I guess happens. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Like you might have, okay, and we're gonna so we're gonna have Joe from product come and share some samples of, of what we're looking at. Great, thank you, Joe. Eugene, come in, show us the spreadsheet. What do the numbers look like? You know what I mean? Right. I guess the one the one interesting thought that I had when I listened to you talking about it right is i think that very often the projection into the future is based on the performance in the past right mm -hmm. and so it's kind of linear i would say yeah. um and then what happens when you know you make a spreadsheet that suddenly does not have a five percent growth but like 50 percent growth yeah or a 30 percent drop Right. And that's the moment when, you know, if you would look at that spreadsheet, you would be like, well, wait, what, what's happening? Right. And how do we interpret the numbers? Because there is a clear disconnect between, you know, what we have seen in the past and what we are seeing in the, 
or how do we project into the future? Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you're unethical, you nudge the number up. <laughs> right. And I don't really know where I'm going with that thought, right? But um, I really like the, you know, every time Julian, you talk about kind of like stepping out of the default, right? Or like shifting that gear to whose dream are we living, right? And maybe that needs to exist outside of that spreadsheet, or maybe mm. that needs to be outside of that like immediate projection. Oh, last year it was 5%, maybe next year it's gonna be three and a half or 6.5. Yeah. We talked about um, speculative design or critical design, right? What I, or the way that I interpret the practice that we are doing is not, is really to create better futures, right? And to create them ourselves. And so it's not necessarily to, to criticize and show the mirror to the society. It's really to build something new and mm -hmm. build it differently, right? And that's kind of why I'm really passionate about finding and thinking about the innovation funnel and how this practice connects to the rest, mm. right? And um, I know that we very often have these conversations, Julian, about how do we make this practice relevant and how do we help the, um, the people that want to um, engage in it um, to make it viable and make it into something that is going to be um, in the more in the mainstream in a good sense of the word mm -hmm. right um, and to me that's what really is exciting about practicing it now right and you know practicing it um, in a place that I am at because it's easier to see those potential potential connections what it might be good for because there is so much other innovation work mm. going on right and i think that the same might be for other bigger organizations necessarily not necessarily design consultancies but internal departments right yeah. and i really yeah. hope that um you know everybody who is out there doing um, this type of work or the bigger organizations out there will, will kind of one way or another recognize the, the value of this practice and, um, and, and start to kind of building it into um, uh, their own, uh, their own uh, innovation funnels, right? Yeah. And in 10 years, we have design fiction departments in... <laughs> totally. Chief de the design fiction author. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> CODF. Yeah. <laughs> or chief of fiction, COF. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Cool. Thank you, guys. No, thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. Cool yeah yeah i hope that i hope that we get that um japanese version of design fiction manual 
Hell yeah. That was Jan Rod and Kinta Kondo from IDEO in Tokyo. Super excited to have uh, them talk about their food insecurity futures sushi box of design fiction. All right. That's all I got for this evening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm Julian, and I'm out. <laughs>